Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We are located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we want to be a community of faithfully present people with God, self, and others. We hope that this encourages you to do the same wherever you are. And thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning. I should sit up front more often. You sounded so great this morning to sit up here and hear you singing behind me. Um, Good morning. As as Natalie said, uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the lay pastors here at Redemption and uh, help out in the prayer ministry, and I'm part of a wonderful team, actually, that prays for you each and every week, and I love that team, and I love um, that we, we value prayer and that they, they take that time, and I know they've been praying for me, so I'm very thankful for that, too. And I'm also grateful for the opportunity to be up here this morning with you and to just share, uh, share the word with you and, and to share the second half of what we cover as Stephen's speech. As you know, we've been in Stephen's uh, response after he was arrested uh, in Acts 7, um, just some simple stuff Alex left me to cover this morning, I think. Yeah. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bible to Acts 7, you'll find one in the pew in front of you if you don't have one, uh, or it'll be on the word to be on the screen behind me. Um, so it's good to have you here this morning. Good to be here. I don't know about you. Um, I became a parent a little bit late in life, as parenting usually goes or often goes. And perhaps it was in all my wisdom, I assumed that when you have a child, you get to set up their room right? You get to say, here's their toys, this is where their clothes are going to go, and it's all going to be contained there. That's their place to, to have, their place to play, their place to, to have their stuff, right? And everything's going to be nice and clean and orderly in the rest of the house. Their stuff isn't going to spill out and make a mess of my living room, is it? Parents, am I right? No. It, it didn't take long to figure out I was wrong. And to be honest, I'm, I, I don't really mind that I was wrong. I actually would never want to contain the joy of our child or any child, actually. But what happens when we try to contain the joy, uh, when we try to contain God? What happens when we try to hold him in? What happens when we feel uh, that we can tell God what he should be like and where he should exist in our life? It's one thing to argue where the toys are kept in the house, but if we try to contain God in his message, well, we're going to see today that comes with a whole another set of consequences. And in trying to contain God, we may find out we have rejected something. Here's one thing that struck me as we've been going through all the whole book of Acts as a church together. They keep having these repeated scenes. The religious leaders have come on the scene and they're trying to contain the message. They're trying to hold it down, right? They've got to stop it. Keep it from spreading. But nothing they do, we see, is working, right? The church is growing and the Holy Spirit is on the move. So now, though, we've come to a scene where things have escalated. They've escalated to the point we have our first martyr for the gospel in Stephen. And just to remind ourselves, the last few weeks, Alex covered the appointment of Stephen, the charges that they brought against him, and the first half of his speech in reply to those charges. So today we're going to look at the second half in which he continues to tell the story, Stephen does, of God's people. And it's a story that left me stunned more than once as I read through it and I studied it. And I found in his sermon, or in this speech, that he really starts to poke a little bit as accusers. And I would like you, as you sit there this morning, to just listen, because we're going to go through it. We didn't have a reading this morning, because we're going to go through verse by verse together, fairly quickly, I hope, or Maybe we'll be here till after lunch, I don't know. 
but we're going to go through it and you're going to hear it. And as you listen, your job this morning is to listen is what, what is Stephen trying to say? What is he trying to get at here? And how might his accusers find that offensive? First, just a few things, a few other things though first, just to get in mind, not to cover in too much detail because we've already done that, but who is Stephen? In case you weren't here, who is Stephen? Stephen, we learned, is one of the Hellenistic Jews. So that's Greek-speaking Jews. He is appointed, chosen uh, by the disciples, laid hands upon by the apostles to help take care of serving the needs of the people. You might remember this came about because the church was rejecting the Hellenistic Jews. There was some racism going on in the church. And what kind of man is Stephen? Well, Acts 6, we found out that he is a man full of faith. A man full of the Holy Spirit, a man full of God's grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs and miracles. And more importantly, well, not more importantly, but one of the other things that was big is they couldn't find a way to withstand the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking. So what do they do? They've got to stop it, right? They've got to stop this spreading Christianity. So people in the synagogue accuse him of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They accuse him of speaking against the temple and the law. So these are what they're accusing him again of. These are charges that would allow him, by the way, to take care of, they would allow his accusers to take care of him in the church. They have to involve the Roman authority with these kind of charges. Sound familiar? False witnesses coming up, testifying against him? I think Jesus would know about this, right? And last week we saw that when Stephen went first in his reply to God, and he covered Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the patriarchs. And we ended with news in their story of the people of Egypt that a new pharaoh has come in, a new king has entered the scene. And so with this, Stephen turns his attention to addressing the charges that he speaks against Moses. And we got a lot of verses to cover, and I want to make sure we get to the main point. I mean, I've talked quite a bit already, but uh, let's see. Stephen is trying to... Uh, get to Moses here, right? And what is he trying to do? Let's see. So let's pick up now at verse 20. And that's where we're going to pick up. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Right out of the gate, Stephen is going to start to say, wait a minute, I know Moses. I know him. You, you say, I don't know him, I know him. Here's what I know about him. Moses is so special to you, I get it. But first, let me remind you that Moses was first beautiful in God's sight. He was specially chosen for God's purposes. The implication, not yours, not your purposes. Know someone else beautiful in God's sight? Verse 21, continuing on. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him, and brought him up as her own son. When they could hide him no more, and he would have to be exposed and subject to being killed, they put Moses in a basket in a river. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. Anielato, Greek, lifted him up out of the water and adopted him as her own son. Think Stephen know about Moses? Yeah, he did. Sure, he knows the story. I think something else as you go through, we're going to notice that he builds Moses up. He cites only positive examples of good things that happened along the way for Moses. Not positive, not all positive, but he, he raises Moses up in a really good light. And Moses, by the way, verse 22, was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. 
Being brought up above as a prince, he received everything. But Egyptian wisdom? Hmm. Uh, Stephen's pointing to an example of how he can use, God can use anything for his purposes. Yeah, even Egyptian wisdom. Hmm. You're Egyptian, you, you chief priests, you Pharisees. Maybe he doesn't need to use you. You hearing me yet? He might not use you. He can use something outside of you. The king of Egypt, by the way, also thought he could frustrate God's purposes. Instead, he ends up raising a redeemer for God's people right in his own household. But does, does the Sanhedrin, do the, does Stephen's accusers have a problem yet? Probably not. Probably not having a problem here yet. And when he was 40 years old, verse 23, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. You'll notice, if you look through here, that Stephen divides the life and story of Moses up into three 40-year periods. And 40, not necessarily literally 40 years, because 40 in the Bible can often used to be representing and signifying a long period of time, often a difficult long period of time. But as Moses turns into an adult in this next 40 years, in this 40 years, we see he begins to see himself as the rescuer, someone that's going to free God's people. So when he goes to them, and he goes to visit them, and when God's people see him first, what happens? When, well, let's keep reading. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them, and as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me? as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? I see this again as a little poke at Stephen's accusers, that one that they probably don't really notice where he's going yet. It's indirect and maybe not super offensive. But look what Stephen is pointing out. You love Moses, right? You hold him high. But look what your forefathers did. When God's Redeemer first comes on the scene in Egypt, what, what did they do? They didn't accept him, did they? Instead, they thrust back and turn on him and reject him. That's what your forefathers did. Who are you? Are you going to kill us too? Hmm. Maybe Stephen's accusers don't get what he's saying yet. Maybe you see where this is going to start to go? I don't know. But we can look back and see that Stephen begins to make an argument here. That your forefathers, you chief priests, your forefathers rejected the rescuer when he first showed up. Which is still, I think, a whisper in the speech, but still there. So did you. So did you. Not noticeable? Okay, keep reading then. So what does Moses do in response? Verse 29. And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. 
Moses thought he would lead an uprising to free his people, and instead he is forced to flee. His cover is blown, and he won't be able to hide the fact that he killed this Egyptian. And now, like the patriarchs we heard about before in Stephen's sermon, he's forced, forced to become an exile, a sojourner in a foreign land, something that he acknowledges himself when he names one of his sons Gershom, which means a sojourner there. And what happens in this next set of 40 years? Verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, Moses, I am going to send you to Egypt. God will raise up a people for like you. Verse 37 there. Let's see. Find my spot. Nope, I'm going a little bit too far there. Ah, oh, 40 years. There we go. Sorry, did you notice something? Stephen, uh, Stephen chooses a big point uh, part here, chooses a big point to make at this part here. Do you notice what, where God is appearing? Do you notice where God's appearing? Hey, chief priests, it's not in Israel. It's in the desert near Sinai. It's not in the temple. You see, holy ground is where God chooses to appear, not where you try to put him. It's not just inside your temple. Kind of another poke at them, I see. But they're letting him continue, so I don't think they quite understand fully what he's saying yet. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. Stephen making clear that Moses was a rejected redeemer. He's saying to them, Look, you leaders, you have a history of rejecting God's Redeemer. You rejected him before in this very Moses you accuse me of, not loving and not holding up. The implication, you're doing it again. Do you see it? Do you see it? Can you think of another rejecter, another, another, excuse me, not rejecter, another Redeemer? He may have in mind, as Stephen says this, Verse 37. Take a look at this next verse. It's pretty big. 37. This is the Moses, by the way, who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Did he just compare Moses to Jesus? Anyone there would know he is quoting a messianic verse from Deuteronomy 6.15. Hold on, though. Stephen's not done yet. 
But I can feel the anger in this crowd starting to grow a little bit at the use of this term. Do you? Do you feel it building? So he goes on. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles given to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. That's right, you religious leaders. You blew it. You didn't recognize God's appointed one the first time around, and you're making the same mistake. Come on, listen to me. Saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. How quickly the forefathers blew it and turned from God once again, rejecting the Redeemer, even after they had recognized him. And he took them out of Egypt. But instead, they turned to idols. By the way, chief priests, Caiaphas, you are doing the same. And what does God do with people like you? Well, let me tell you, verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the, most, the, worship the host of heaven. And as it is written in the book of the prophets, it's coming from Amos, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of, and the star of your God, Rapan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Well, F.F. Bruce, when he hit this passage, had a comment to say that these are terrible words. But the principle that men and women are given up due to the due consequences of their own settled choices Well, it's well established in scripture and experience. And Stephen is once again sounding the warning to them that they will be given over to face the consequences of rejecting the Redeemer, just as their forefathers did when they went off and worshipped planets and idols and made a calf. And now, hearing that, I can only imagine that the anger in this crowd is starting to build even more. Stephen's accusers, I can imagine them thinking, what? wait, wait, what? what? Hold on. Is, is he accusing us? Is he accusing us of something? How dare he? He's the one on trial here, not us. But make no mistake, Stephen is turning the tables on them. And he doesn't just stop at Moses. Because remember, they also accused him of something else, right? They accused him of speaking against the temple. So, in his sermon or story, what is, how does Stephen respond to that? Verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of uh, witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, 
brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that drove God out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. They've been claiming, temple, temple, temple. He's rejecting the place of God. But wait, Stephen says, I'm not against the temple. I know the story. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. I know the story, don't you? Don't you see? If you want to accuse me of being against the temple, let me tell you that God is not confined to your temple. You are worshiping the temple, but not the God who is supposed to live in it. Look, by the way, you aren't even standing in Stephen's temple, uh, Solomon's temple. You're not even standing in Solomon's temple. It's gone. God wiped it out already. You're in Herod's temple now, and he's going to destroy that too. You can't confine God. For where is he? Verse 48 will tell us. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, now quoting Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Quoting Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2 there, Stephen pokes them yet again to drive home a point that they have turned the temple itself into an idol. They have tried to confine God instead of seeing that these things only point to something else. And what is it? What is it that Stephen is trying to point to during this whole time? What point is he trying to make with them? Well, hold on one more moment, if you will. Just one more moment, please, because maybe, maybe you see it coming. Maybe you don't. But at this point, I can only suspect that things are getting so hot in that room, Stephen's time is getting very short. How much more can, they, can he say? How much more will they take? Because they are understanding the implication of all these things. Well, everything he says now has been leading up to this point in his sermon, this point in the story. And it comes down to this. If they didn't get it before, they're going to get it now. And so should we. Look. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Holy moly. <laughs> That's it. That's the climax, to put it mildly. This is what Stephen's speech, entire speech has been leading to. That they have repeatedly repeatedly rejected the will of God. You want to accuse me of being against God, the law, Moses, the temple? Well, it's not me, but you. You who have been and are against these things. 
they would immediately, immediately have recognized the offense of this term, by the way, calling them stiff-necked. That term, culturally, in their culture, was very, very, very strong. Literally, someone who will not bow to God, who will not submit to God. These people who say that they are all for God, right? You won't bow to him. And resisting him. And by the way, your circumcision, the sign of being God's people, well, guess what? For you, it's only physical. Your hearts are completely in the wrong place. Look at your history. I just gave it to you. It's been the same all the way through. God calls Joseph. You reject him. God brings up Moses. You reject him. God says, here is my law. You make a golden calf. God says, I am bigger than any building, but you still want to stick him in your building. And how about the prophets? Look what you did to them. We just quoted Isaiah a moment ago. You know what they did to him? We don't know exactly for sure, but Jewish tradition holds that may or may not be the case, that they cut him in half. And whether that was what they did or not, they definitely killed him. And all this means, you chief priests, that you are resisting the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. And what's more, you've done even worse. You've done worse. You killed the righteous one. That's right. See it now? You had him in front of you and you killed the Messiah. He was there and you rejected him and you put him on a cross. You people who do not keep God's law. Whew, I need a breath. It's a bit tough, Mike, right? Can't you go a little more gently here? Can't, can't, can't this be a, a, a more calm message? I don't think so. We don't skip the heavy passages when they come before us. But I did have to thank Alex for giving me such an easy and gentle passage to preach to you this morning. But this is what it's all about. Stephen, Stephen saying to the crowd, you missed it. You say you are the righteous one, but you, all of you, you Caiaphas, you chief priests, you religious leaders, you false witnesses, you had the Savior in front of your eyes and you missed him. The perfect one was here. The perfect one was here. You want to talk about Moses, but don't you see? Moses wasn't the perfect one, but he did point to the one who was perfect. His life pointed to Jesus, who fulfilled all the Old Testament and the law. I'm not rejecting it, says Stephen, but I am accusing you of killing the one who fulfilled it. Now, do you see? We can't miss this point. And in case you missed some of the connections between Moses and, and our rescuer, our redeemer, Jesus, let me just cite a few of the ways that Moses' life points to Jesus. After all, we, Moses himself, we heard, said he, he will raise up a prophet like him. So Moses was born and beautiful in God's sight, right? What did God say about Jesus? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Moses had a king that wanted to kill him. Jesus had a king that wanted to kill him at birth. Moses became the son of a king. Jesus is the son of the Most High. Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd. 
Jesus is the good shepherd. Moses performed miracles, and Jesus performed miracles, and some of them were similar. Moses led God's people out of captivity. Jesus proclaims in Luke 4, He has sent me to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Moses had very intimate, face-to-face conversations with God, it says. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son. You can't get any closer than that relationship. Moses' face shone after talking to God. Jesus' face shone at the transfiguration. Moses was in exile in the desert. Jesus went in the desert to be tested before beginning his earthly ministry. Moses goes up a mountain to receive God's law. Jesus stands on a mountain and gives us the Beatitudes. And even more, Jesus fulfills the law perfectly, and he goes up a mountain to die on a cross. As for the temple, how does that compare to Jesus in our story? Well, Jesus said, destroy this body, and I will raise it again in three days. No, not the physical temple you all are thinking about, but he himself. You stiff-necked people, you blew it. You see... This message is unbearable for the chief priests and those who put Stephen on trial. And it might be easy to hear in the story and miss the point that that it applies and can apply to us too. That there is a warning for us too. We can try to put God in our box. We can try to put all his stuff into a nice tidy room and keep it all clean so it doesn't spill out. And we can try to make God what we want him to be. But in the end, if we do that, we run the danger of having missed who God is, and finding out that we too have rejected him and rejected his Savior. I I know for me, I've been in the church my whole life in some fashion. And it's easy for me to start forming opinions of how things should run, what the music should play, what the church should teach me, how a sermon should look. Probably not like this one. But I can get I can get tied up into all types of inconsequential details, right? And I can forget the big picture. That it's all about Jesus. Our faith and our life in him. And whatever we do when we come in this building, let's not miss that. Stephen's accusers knew their scripture. Perhaps you know it too. They had it memorized, the first five books, right? We heard that from Alex, that they, they would start by memorizing Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. They knew it all. We memorize verses, right? We can do that. They knew all the words, and they missed it all. A warning for us in this story. We can read our Bible, and we can memorize it, and we can talk about it, we're good at that. In Seattle, we can, we can take anything and turn it into a nice intellectual activity. But if we don't let it penetrate our hearts, we'll miss Jesus. And we'll put God in a box, or try to, where it's comfortable for us and be as guilty as Stephen's accusers. This is a hard message to talk in front of you. I'm sorry. But I want you to think. Think, too, about you. For just a moment. I'm not accusing you of rejecting Jesus, but I want us to think about where we have tried to put God in a box and maybe missed Jesus in our lives. Think for a moment. 
What have you tried to make him to be instead of just sitting before him and taking him for who he is, where he is, in your life? And it doesn't have to be just here. Do you just go to God on a Sunday morning and forget about him the rest of the week? Because for you, he's only here in this temple. It's, it's uncomfortable to bring him into my workplace or into my family life or with my friends. It's a hard question to face, but that is my charge for you this week to think about that. Think this week, where does God want in in your life? Where is that holy ground where he can appear to you and appears to you? And where is he trying to appear to you? Where does he want to be? Not where you want him to be. I know he wants you to see his son, Jesus, for who he really is. Jesus went up a mountain and he took on all your sin. And while this is a hard message to hear, perhaps, a little uncomfortable in our seats, we too can see here today, though, that there is good news to hear. There is good news. We have a Redeemer that has already come. Stephen tells us he's already been here. The Rescuer has come, and he's come to save you. Don't miss him. I pray that the Holy Spirit would work today to open our eyes. You have a chance, by the way. Maybe you're here and some of you haven't. You've, you've been rejecting him and holding him out. Then the call today is to accept him. Don't miss him. He's in front of you right now as we hear this word that Stephen speaks. You can turn to him today. Or maybe you've known him, but you've kind of wandered away. Well, then turn back. You can see him again today. We have that chance. That is the good news, that he has saved us. He loves us, and he will take you where you are. You don't have to just be here in this building to meet him. He will meet you wherever you go, and he is ready to meet you and wants to. So let him come. Open your hearts and your minds and let God's word penetrate. Stephen's accusers, by the way, also had a chance. They had a chance to turn and see Jesus. They could have done it right there. They could have done it during the sermon. Did they? No. No. And it's at that point in our story, they pick up the stones. And that's where we'll have to leave it today. And Alex will pick it up next week. God, I know that in our hearts we have been guilty of rejecting you, of pushing you out of our lives, of trying to live comfortably in a place that we've created. So this morning I pray that you would change us, that you would bring our faith alive and that no one here this morning would miss your Redeemer. And it's in the name of Jesus that we come before you today. And I thank you for the life of Stephen and the words of your Holy Spirit that you gave us through him. And in Jesus' name we pray. 
Thanks again for joining us. If you want more information about our church or would like to come visit us on a Sunday, go to redemptionseattle.com.